Please stand uh, for the reading of God's word. This is Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might have to come first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of God. Thank you, God. You guys can be seated. Thank you, Grace, for reading for us. Man, that last song kind of preached it for me. So we're going to wrap up. We'll be done. We'll see you guys next week. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, thank you, uh, Adam and Megan, for leading this morning. These guys have had led faithfully for over a decade at the journey uh, before the journey and Redeemer became one. So I just want to say thank you for leading all those years and for leading this morning and last week, and, and they've been uh, such a faithful part of our uh, worship team. Um, thank you, uh, Elizabeth and, and Brian. Guys, your pastor can play the drums. I mean, it's not just a box. Um, he, he can play that thing too. So um, Brian's been preaching the last couple of weeks, and I just wanted to say that I'm grateful to be back on stage. We're, we're going to practice a rotation uh, to try and stay fresh and stay healthy uh, so that we can focus on some other things on, on our weeks off, uh, but so that we can rest and we can try to regain our energy on, on those weeks. And I just have to say that's, that's a great blessing of having co-pastors, that we are not doing this alone. We're leaning on each other. Uh, and, and Brian is a good, good grace to me from God uh, that he would not let me plant this church by myself. Um, I've got some friends that have planted churches by themselves, and I don't know how they do it except for the grace of God through the Spirit. So um, Brian is a, a gift to me and a blessing, but I am grateful to be back. It was, it was um, exciting for me last week to prepare the message. I was just ready to be back and, and preach. So um, let me introduce myself because there's a lot of people that I don't know. Uh, my name is Ryan Owens, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer I grew up in San Angelo. I grew up going to Central. I graduated with over 700 other uh, classmates. And I don't even know what my class rank was when, when it all shook out. I just know that I was the guy that, like, I tried to stay in the background, under the radar, get straight Bs so I don't get noticed for doing anything awesome, so I don't get noticed for doing anything less. And it worked out. I left with, like, three friends and nobody signing my yearbook, and it was, it was, uh, I, that was on purpose. I, uh, fear of failure uh, in high school led to, led to me um, playing golf. Uh, on, I was on the golf team, but uh, that, what that meant was I didn't get any superlatives, right? I looked at the yearbook that uh, my graduating class had. I looked at it yesterday, and there's like 20 superlatives. A lot of them were just gag superlatives, like best car, best, um, most, most likely to, to think they're your dad, stuff like that. But superlatives in high school are, you know, best smile, most humorous. Kirsty won most humorous, right? Um, 
So those superlatives are, are to show us, present before the class who's the best, who's the most preeminent, and I'll define that word in a second. Did anybody else win a class superlative? Anybody want to share that? Adam, what did you get? Best personality. Best personality. I can see that, man. Good for you. Anybody else? Joe? What'd you get, Joe? Oh, nice. Um, Chandler also got highest ranking boy in his class. He was homeschooled. Um, best smile, best hair, most likely to succeed. <laughs> uh, so these superlatives present to us who is the best, right? Who's most elevated, who um, we can look up to in our class. And even though I purposely kind of hid from the rest of the world in high school, there's still a little bit of a sting when I didn't get any votes for anything. If I would have gotten a superlative, it would have been like most likely to be most unlikely, most boring, most likely to be forgettable. Um, but this section of Colossians is subtitled The Preeminence of Christ. And so we can take our definition, our understanding of these superlatives, and we can elevate that a little bit, okay? So this word preeminence, I don't use it very often. I did not use it until reading this passage and preparing for this sermon. And so um, I'm going to define it for us. And I'm going to take a note out of Brian's book because he's the English major. I'm a science guy. But um, let's break this word apart. So the root of that, the, the part of the word that carries the weight is eminent. And to be eminent means that you're leading the pack. You're distinguished. You're ahead of the rest. Right? And so the prefix pre means that you're before, you're ahead, you're above. And when we combine those things, we get the most distinguished, above the distinguished, ahead of leading the pack. It's this extra. And so our, our definition of superlative, our understanding of superlatives is kind of put in the shadow when we talk about the word preeminent. When we're talking about the preeminence of Christ, we're not talking about Jesus being the most likely to be God someday. We're talking about Jesus is elevated as the only God. He's the only way to salvation. He's the only way to find grace and peace. He's the only way to get life. There's no competition. There's no most likely or second most likely. It's only Jesus. Okay? There's nothing that can do what he does. And for this, he deserves our worship. The preeminence of Christ deserves a response from us. There's no neutral ground with the gospel. You accept or you reject. The preeminence of Christ and his goodness for what he's done for us deserves our worship. So we're gonna look later at what our worship is. Verses 15 through 17 explain that Jesus is God of creation, that he created all things all things were created for him. So Jesus made everything we see. When Paul says in heaven and on earth, it's the things we see, but also the things we don't see, the spiritual, the supernatural. And that all of it is purposed to point back 
to Jesus, to worship Jesus. Creation was designed to worship. And verses 18 through 20 explain that Jesus is God of the new creation. Because there was a fall, there was some brokenness, something happened way back on, like, what is it, like page two of the Bible. All of creation is broken because of sin. And so whenever we look at Jesus being Lord of creation, preeminent over creation, and preeminent over the new creation, that means that he's working and he's worked to fix that broken, that he's making creation brand new. He's redeeming, he's reconciling, he's bringing us and all creation back to God. Let's take a look at verse 18 specifically. And he, Jesus, and Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus is the originator of the church. He's the source of the church. He's the purpose of the church. He is the life and the existence of the church. The church is this new creation. And I'm not talking about this building. I'm not talking about what we're doing. I'm talking about you. You are the new creation in Christ. And our lives were made to worship him. So Paul presents this hymn as a sign of worship that we would live a life holy before God, loving God, loving people, because that is worship. Singing songs is loving God and declaring his goodness because we love him. Not because he's useful to us, because he's worthy. Getting ahead of myself. When we say, when, when Paul says Jesus is the head of the church, he's the head of the body, you can think of the head of a river, okay? Um, the source waters of a river give the river its life, its flow, its substance, its seasons. Jesus gives you, the church, your life, your substance, your flow. Jesus is the whole point of why we were made and it's life that we get from him. Only in Jesus do we find grace and peace. Only in Jesus do we find life. The fallenness and brokenness of this creation Israel. Hurricanes and pandemics cause a lot of pain, a lot of sorrow, a lot of weariness. But sin and death does not own you like it used to. Christian, you belong to Jesus. You belong to the church. You are the body of Christ. The church, is a, the church of Jesus is a place of belonging. It's a place of restoration. It's a place of healing, being brought back to God. It's this lifestyle of being brought back to God, but also being brought back to one another. 
And so when we look at who this, this head of this church, what we're going to look at is uh, who is Jesus? Who is this leader? Who's this? Because it's a little bit, it feels a little bit like there's a break here, right? Because Paul's kind of singing about Jesus being this awesome creator and all things were made to him. And then he talks about ecclesiology and the structure of the church. Why does he do that? Uh, well, let's look at it. Let's look at why Paul brings up ecclesiology. And I want to show you um, that we can trust him. When we talk about the church, we know, at least to some degree, that the church is made up of people. And what we know about people is that people are broken, and we know that people hurt. We get hurt, but we also inflict hurt, don't we? And so when we talk about Jesus being the head of this church, the head of these people that cause us pain, can we trust Jesus? Can we trust him to not be the source in the life of this oppression, of this affliction? Can we trust him to be the opposite of what the church has done to us? And I would argue, and Paul would argue here, that yes, we can trust Jesus. We can trust him by what verse 19 says. Verse 19 will help us to trust him. Let's, let's read. <clears throat> For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's the shortest verse in this hymn, but it carries the most weight. It carries the fullness of God. What is the fullness of God? Why can we trust Jesus? Let's look at Exodus 34. And I will ask you to flip there if you have a Bible with you this morning. Um, We're going to show it on the screen, but it's also important for you to see the, the surrounding text. On your way there, if you pass by Exodus 32, the subtitle of Exodus 32 is the golden calf. When the nation of Israel rejected God to build an idol for themselves while they were waiting impatiently for Moses. Moses comes down and destroys the tablets of the Ten Commandments, right? In his anger, his righteous anger for God. Exodus 34, Moses goes back on Mount Sinai. God tells him to cut new stones. And before he does that, God reveals himself to Moses in a special way. Anytime in, in the Hebrew scriptures, Old Testament, you see the Lord, and Lord is in caps, that's um, another way to say Yahweh, which is God's name that he gave to Moses. He, he, um, Moses said, who, who do I say that sent me? God has never revealed his name before, but he did to Moses then. He says, Yahweh, I am. And so when we see the Lord, we can also think Yahweh, this God set above, okay? Exodus 34, 6 through 7. The Lord, Yahweh, passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, 
but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What Exodus 34 shows us is that Jesus is completely and totally this God, compassionate, gracious, forgiving, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We have a really limited understanding of what steadfast love and faithfulness means because our lives are marred and scarred with unfaithfulness and weak and limited love. But Jesus bears the fullness of God, the fullness of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. So we see in Colossians 1.19 that the fullness of God's love dwells in Jesus. Today we see it in part. We see it in words. We see it in the way that God moves in our lives. Someday we will see it in full. We will see it face to face. Lord, come soon. Let that day be soon. Seeing who God is requires a response. Even a non-response is a response. Like I mentioned before, we either accept the gospel, we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, or we don't. Accepting or not responding, not responding is rejecting. Accepting or rejecting are only two options. And we look at that second part of Exodus, but who will by no means forget the guilty? That's a reality. That means God knows people will reject him. The guilty are the people that reject God. And by not accepting salvation from God, you are rejecting God. When you're offered salvation from eternal death, you can only accept or reject that offer. So what do we do? How do we respond after we accept, right? So we say that we, okay, God, I believe you. Yes, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. What now? In Mark 1.15, um, Jesus says, repent. This is Jesus inaugurating his ministry in the, the book of Mark. Repent. Turn the other way. Turn from your sin. And believe the good news. Believe the gospel. So what are we believing in? We're believing in Jesus to be enough, right? We're believing in God to be faithful to us, to give us steadfast love, to be gracious and compassionate, even in the midst of our sin, because the guilty, the guilty doesn't pertain to whether or not, um, what, how, what we do. And I'll, I'll explain that a little bit more later. Guilty means you reject God. So when we accept him and we live a holy life before him, this is what Jesus is talking about. Repent, turn from your sin and believe. Verse 20 shows us the cost of that because that can't just happen automatically. We don't just automatically um, believe in God and 
all is, all is well because there was a fall. There was a sin. There was a rejection by humanity. There, so there's a cost. There's a sacrifice. Verse 20 shows us that. Let's read. And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So that ability to accept or reject God comes with the cross. Our sin has left us only rejecting God. But now Jesus has come. God himself has come to us and made a way for us to accept and say yes to this gracious and generous offer for God to now be our life and our salvation. This good news had a cost. The reconciliation came at a price that you did not have to pay. All that's required of you is your yes. The fullness of God gave up his preeminence. Jesus gave up that preeminence that's there. Lord of creation. He gave it up. There's a throne room in heaven. And the robe of Jesus fills that throne room. And there's angels singing. You can get this picture in Isaiah 6. It's incredible. Jesus gave that up to be a baby, to wear a diaper, to learn to walk and talk and eat solid food, to be hurt, to cry, to be tempted. He gave that up so that you would have life in him. That is the cost of repent and believe. And the only thing we can do as a proper response to God is repent and believe the good news. So, what does a life of repenting and believing look like? If Jesus is preeminent, if Jesus is preeminent and his preeminence deserves our worship, how do we worship? What is true worship? Matthew 22, Jesus asked, is asked this question by his accusers. They're like, okay, so if you're a God, then you know what true obedience looks like. You know what it means to live before God. What's the greatest of the Ten Commandments? And Jesus says all of them in a roundabout way. He says, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The greatest commandment is to love God. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. It's a bonus to his accusers. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice, they're asking, what do we do? What is obedience? What is good action? What are good deeds? And Jesus says, true obedience is a heart that has love and affection for God and his people. Believing is a heart change 
because we're repenting, right? We're turning from our sin and changing the way that we live, the way that we see. We're saying yes to Jesus, and he produces a heart change in us. And that heart change doesn't produce action. That heart change produces affection. We're still with the heart. So when we put action before love, things get all messed up. When we believe, we need God to produce love in us, and it's from love that we can act rightly towards God, that we can live holy lives before him, that we can love our neighbor by the way that we treat them. Jesus relates believing to loving, and that loving produces good action. Loving produces obedience. Pastor Eugene Peterson explains um, the implications of this on the other side. So what happens when we fail to love? He says, believing without loving is what gives religion a bad name. Believing without loving destroys lives. Believing without loving turns the best of creeds into a weapon of oppression. 20th century theologian Henry Nouwen says something very similar, but he brings it a little bit closer to the heart where our, our pain comes from and where our motives to inflict pain comes from. He says this, power is an easy substitute for the hard task of love. The hard task of love. We find it easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than to love people. Easier to control life than to love life. This is serious stuff. And I think all of us, at least most of us, can relate to being controlled, being overpowered, being dominated, weapons of oppression used against us in Jesus' name. Whether we've been witness to it or it's been directed at us, we've seen or felt the pain of the church believing without loving. Have we not? And what Exodus 34 shows us, what Colossians 19 shows us, is that we can trust Jesus to not be behind all of this pain. You must know that it is not Jesus that has given religion a bad name. It is not Jesus that has destroyed lives. It is not Jesus that has used his church as a weapon of oppression against you. Jesus restores and heals and reconciles us back to himself. The source of our life, not our destruction. And so on behalf of the church, I am sorry if his people have hurt you. That's not the gospel. I'm glad you're here. His church is a new creation, invited into this life 
of death and resurrection for ourselves so that we can live to Christ. I'm going to read that Henry Nouwen quote again because there's two ways we can look at this. We can look at it as the, the power that's been used against us, the pain that's been caused to us, and we should because Jesus heals. But we should also take a look at ourselves. We should look at the power that we've used against others, the control that we've tried to have on God. Let's read uh, now and again. Power is an easy substitute for the hard task of love. We find it easier to be God than to love God, easier to control people than to love people, easier to control life than to love life. It is possible for you to believe Jesus and not love Jesus. It is possible for you to believe Jesus and not love his church. Jesus makes it clear that a life of believing in him and following him, worshiping him, is truly a life of loving him and loving his people. He says it in John 14, as does the Old Testament in Exodus 20 uh, and Deuteronomy 5, that loving God is obeying God. Loving God is living a holy life before him. True worship is singing songs and living a holy life before God. Again, in, in John 14, Jesus encourages us because we don't have the power to produce that love in ourselves. We can believe without loving, but we can also believe and love. But in John 14, Jesus tells us that he will give us his spirit. The author and originator and source and life of love dwells within us. We are his dwelling place. We are the temple. We are the tabernacle. We are where the spirit of God resides to produce in us love and good works. A life of worship before him. So we need the spirit. We need the gospel. We need the grace of God in Christ to give us his Holy Spirit to produce good works in a heart that loves This is why we pray. Brian said it before that our, our season that we're in right now is a season of prayer and proximity. And if you're tracking with me, that's where I'm headed. This is why we pray. We pray because we need God. We pray because Jesus is preeminent. We pray because we love God. We need him to produce love in us. So if God, if the fullness of God in Jesus is love, and then when we put our faith in Jesus, the Spirit resides in us, God's love resides in us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can love like Exodus 34 says that God loves. It's not our love, it's God's love in us to love him, to love our neighbor in another one of Jesus' most famous parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
I hope that we get to preach that some, sometime soon. Jesus is questioned, well, who's our neighbor? And he's like, you, guys, you missed the point. Your neighbor is everyone. In the church, not in the church, believer, not a believer, everyone. Child, slave, woman, man, whoever. Believing in Jesus and following Jesus is a life of loving God. Believing in Jesus and following Jesus is a life of loving others. Again, Matthew 22, Jesus draws this connection that we often overlook or sometimes even purposefully avoid. That loving God is tied to loving others. A holy life before God is loving him and loving our neighbor. He would not just say, well, in the second greatest commandment is this, but you can throw that away. He says it's like it. It's up there with it. It's not a 1A and 1B. He says, I can't tell you to love God without telling you to love other people. And so how do we do that here? How do we do that at Redeemer? We're in a season having just begun having just brought two separate bodies together, and now we're open, we're, we're launched, and we're welcoming in new people. So we've got a lot of different backgrounds. We have to realize that it's our nature to make ourselves preeminent, not Jesus. It's our nature to want to be God, not love him. So we naturally pit ourselves against each other. We find it easy to, to hate, to speak poorly about the people we don't understand, the people that are far from us. That's why in this season, we're, we're trying to bring proximity to one another. We naturally pit ourselves against the people we don't understand. But again, who is it that Christ died for? Who was it that he made reconciliation possible for? Some people? Certain kinds of people? A hierarchy of people? No. All things are being reconciled back to him. That means all people have the choice, have the ability, have the opportunity to say yes to Jesus and be reconciled with God and reconciled with others. It's even by God's grace that we can say yes to him. So if you have faith in Jesus, if you say yes to Jesus, then Christ is in you. His Holy Spirit is in you. And if Christ is in you, then who am I to make you my enemy? Is Christ my enemy? If that's true, then I've rejected him. And now I'm the guilty party. Do you see that the unity that Christ brings when, when he unifies us to himself, he unifies us to one another? Jesus gave up preeminence to get on our level, to look us in the eye and welcome us into his life, his death, and his resurrection. And 2 Corinthians 5 shows us that we are now welcomed in joining into that life, death, and resurrection. 
It says that the ministry of reconciliation is now given to us. I'm gonna stop there for a second. I don't mean us like me and Brian. I mean us like the church. Just because I'm up here saying some words at you doesn't make me more the church. Adam and Megan leading worship doesn't make them more the church. We are all the church over which Christ is preeminent alone. There are no superlatives among us. He doesn't need us, by the way. Jesus does not need us to fulfill this ministry of reconciliation. He invites us into it. He welcomes us into it. Like I invite and welcome my five-year-old son to come mow the lawn with me. He just started pushing the lawn by himself, and he likes to go diagonal. I don't need his help, but I delight in it. I love looking back at the yard and seeing little corners of poked up grass over all the cut grass. We get to join in this ministry of reconciliation with Jesus. This is repenting and believing. This is being the church. John 13, 14. Jesus again says, If I, your Lord and teacher, if I, the preeminent God among you, have served you, so you too must serve each other. If Jesus left the throne room of heaven to come to us, to welcome us into reconciliation, to serve us, who are we to be divided? Jesus, this person of reconciliation, of welcoming and belonging, is the head of the church. Then the church should be a place of reconciliation, a place of healing, a place of welcoming and belonging. How heavenly would it be if this church was a place of reconciliation and belonging? Can we just think about that for a second? Can we get the vision of God's spirit for his church? Because Jesus works through his church to love his church what if this place were a place where we loved one another so well that we knew it was God loving us? That Christ in you and Christ in me would bring unity and love to this body? What if in our months of praying for revival in San Angelo, this is God's plan to bring you to maturity and to bring new people into this love. Doesn't that, doesn't that make it easier? Doesn't that make it make more sense? Doesn't that stir our affections in our heart to be able to say, yeah, gosh, I can't not invite you to lunch. I can't not invite you to my house Thursday night. We can push through the awkwardness. We can push through the small talk. I, 
I've struggled with small talk because I'm bad at it, but my favorite pastor, uh, preacher, Ray Ortland, says that small talk is good. I'm going to trust him while I'm researching that, but we can trust small talk to be an entry point if what's behind that is a willingness to love and serve one another, right? What if the Spirit wants to use this church to spark renewal in San Angelo, to spark revival in San Angelo by hospitality, by welcoming each other, not just into our homes, but into our lives, We've all got different backgrounds. We've got different preferences. We're coming from um, different traditions. We've got different ideas about how to do church. What if we let those be secondary issues and we be the church? We love one another. Worship God together. If Jesus is truly preeminent in our lives. It changes how we live with God and each other. And as we share in communion, we're letting Jesus be preeminent among us. We're putting away our desired superlatives for ourselves and we're joining together as Christ's church. In communion, we're on the same level. We've got the tables in the back with the elements, the body of Christ broken for you and the person next to you and the person across the room. The blood of Christ spilled for you and your neighbor so that those who would look on him and believe would have life, would have unity with God and unity with one another this practice of communion, this remembrance of Jesus and the sacrifice he made that we saw in verse 20. This is a practice of making Jesus most preeminent in our lives. It's a statement that we need Christ in us to have life, to love, because we are not enough. This is a practice that is reserved for the church, for those who have said yes to Jesus, for those who have put their faith in Jesus as a source of our life and our love. Because it's also a practice of community. For those of us that have been baptized into the family, for those of us that take communion together as a family, this is worship. This is community. We take the same body and the same blood together. Let's pray. Holy Father, we stand before you a needy people, an unworthy people, that you would come down from heaven, your throne of holiness and righteousness, that you would give that up in order to dwell among us and live among us and die as one of us for us. God, and we say yes to this sacrifice. Would you produce love in us through your Holy Spirit to love you by living holy lives 
lead us to pray because we need you, because we love you, not because we can control you, not because we can get something out of you. And would you help us to love one another by welcoming each other into our lives. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that in him, your fullness dwells, not in part, but that you have presented Jesus as your fullness to us, a grace. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.